Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. I'm your host, Stephen Kilpatrick, and we are about to visit Savannah, Georgia. Last week we heard of the George Guidestones, my second favorite stop, on a trip after the Brown Mountain Lights, which I find fascinating. In West Virginia, we stopped at the home of the missing Sodder children. The ladies over at Stuff You Missed in History class have done an episode on this very story and goes into far more detail than I did, and covers a story that is more expansive than... I even knew about. Link to that will be in the show notes, and I would highly encourage you to give that episode a listen. A few weeks ago, I had asked for anyone who happened to have a mystery, ghost, cult activity, monsters, or anything of the like to send in a link, story, or better still, a several-minute recording of that local mystery. To date, we have received zero. So, we'll spend a bit more time in Savannah, then we will have a brief break from these stories in front of our fiction, then I'll be bringing back something else, maybe entirely. Near the end of high school, or perhaps it was early college, my family took a trip to Hilton Head, South Carolina, home of Loggerhead Turtle Nesting Grounds. One day, we took a drive south to Savannah. After an aimless walk down the river street and a longer meander south looking for the Forrest Gump bench at Chippewa Square, we found ourselves outside a graveyard near the Savannah College of Art and Design. That doesn't narrow anything down, since there are probably a dozen small plots within a few blocks of any given spot in historic Savannah. They seem to be knee-deep in their own dead in that town. I recall that our white Ohio family was stopped by a man who, in my memory, must have been 
homeless, and offered my father to give us a tour and directions to wherever we were headed for a small price. The price stuck out in my mind due to its specificity, and later that dollar amount would become a bit of a meme thanks to South Park and the Loch Ness Monster. The man asked for $3.50, giving the reason to my dad that it was the cost of a soda and a franc. That, he said with a wink. I remember my dad gave him a Lincoln and didn't bother asking for change, but his directions did get us to where we would eventually be going, to one of Savannah's many ghost tours. Which tour specifically, I couldn't tell you, but I do recall that in the cemetery with the grave of one Corinne Elliot Lawton. The tour guide let the group know that Miss Lawton was born into a rich family, but died young. Legend has it that she fell for a poorer man, and her family made it clear that she would have no interest in marrying below her station, and introduced her to the man her parents had approved of her marrying. The day before this wedding, heartbroken, she rode her horse to the banks of the Savannah River, tossed herself into the water, and drowned. Her family commissioned a famous sculptor from Palermo, Sicily, to create her grave marker, which would be a statue of Corinne herself buried just outside of the family plot and turned away from her family. Just before we get to our fiction, a reminder, link to our Patreon is in the show notes. Your contributions are how we pay the bills around here. Next up, we have an interview with Don Kurtigich with our own editor, Philip Oldham. Afterwards, we'll be hearing from none other than Jason Sterner. Children of the Night, this is Dawn Kurtigich, author of the new novel, The Dead House, and we have her here to interview with us. Dawn, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm a little nippy. It's been storming here and our village was flooded last week, so that's always fun. Good uh, fodder for horror novels, for sure. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Is everything okay? You're not going to float away on us, are you? I hope not. My friend's car did float away, but uh, my car is safe and sound. I'm on the top of a hill looking down on everyone uh, in the flood water. <laughs> <laughs> as you should be, as you should be. Authors should always look down on the minions beneath them. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we have you here, and um, The Dead House is your debut novel. So please tell us a little bit about uh, your story and what it is. Well, The Dead House tells the story of two girls who are sisters, but they're unusual um, because they share the same body. Um, Caitlin is our main protagonist. Uh, She only comes out during the night, and her sister Carly is um, the one who comes out during the day. So they each have half a life, and they're kind of sharing that life. But the only two people who sort of believe that they were real are gone forever their parents died in a tragic accident and they've been left and they remanded into her majesty's care Hmm. Um, and they've been diagnosed with did dissociative identity disorder and they're under the care of a doctor who fully believes that they have did which is multiple personality disorder um so they believe that caitlin the night altar isn't actually real that she's just a symptom of trauma that she's um, sort of making Carly sick and Carly invented her to cope with the trauma of her parents death or some other previous trauma and Caitlin's like what the hell I'm (laughs) I'm real I've always been here but of course no one believes her and no one believes Carly and of course so they live this existence where the therapist is saying well no you've got to integrate you've got to become one again Except that one day Caitlin wakes up and it's the morning. It's her first morning. She's never seen a blue sky. She's never seen sunrise. And all of a sudden Carly is gone and this gaping hole inside of her. And um, 
her doctors are like, hooray, you've integrated. Actually, you're the real personality. It wasn't Carly. Sorry, we got that wrong. Um, you're the real personality. You just have to live with the fact that Carly's integrated. Um, but she knows something is wrong. Now, Carly's best friend believes that it's some kind of um, sinister practice going on. And she believes in a type of religion slash ritual practice called Mala. And she believes that some kind of evil entity has actually stolen Carly away. So what they need to do to get Carly back is to go into the dead house of Caitlin's mind and explore the corridors and try to find Carly in there, in her mind. But when they're there, they discover that something else more sinister might be in there with them. And that's mm-hmm. the basic premise. <laughs> That, that that's fantastic. You you've got all the the major uh, hits in horror. You've got you know, <laughs> creepy little that. girls. You've got psychological. <laughs> you've got magic. You've got um, yeah. it's fantastic. I when I was reading through it, it was just mm, a, a gorgeous piece of work. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so th- this is your debut novel, though. Um, yes. Yes. What have you written before? How did you get published? This is uh, through a major publishing house, too. Yes, that's true. Um, Well, when I was 20, I had a revelation. Before this, I had been studying at university, and I decided I was going to study economics because, of course, that was a safe option, except my brain didn't kind of bend that way. Uh, I met and married my husband, and he said something to me that kind of stuck. He said, you need to dare to be yourself. You know, you can't live your life fearing not making a success because I thought, oh, I'll just write on the side and (laughs) see what happens. And he was like, no, you can't live your life like that. You can't do things because you're afraid. You need to dare to be yourself. So when I was 20, I decided, right, that's it. I want to be published. I want to write and be published more than anything. So I started the journey there. Um, Something like, what was it, six years later and five novels later, one of which I rewrote 23 times because that's how stubborn (laughs) I am. Um, I got a book deal. In the middle of that, I um, I went into liver failure and I was actually quite poorly for a long time. And it's funny because that's how The Dead House came about. It came out about because of that experience. I had inversion syndrome where um, you're awake all night and you sleep during the day. So all I knew were these endless nights. And that's kind of where Caitlin came from. But it was during that point and after I got transplanted where I had this story in my head, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to rush anymore because I'd suffered with what all youth suffers from which is the okay i need to do something i need to do it quickly um and i thought you know what put the brakes on i just this story is a catharsis for me i need to get it right i just need to do it for myself i was like i don't care if it takes 90 years i don't care you know if i'm never published i just i need to get the story right and i think that was the key i I put everything into the story i took my time um i really explored what terrified me it was a really scary book to write and i'm a chicken i'm scared of everything (laughs) and i love it i'm a masochist because i'm scared of everything but i love being scared of everything um so when i decided to do that that, um, the, the novel just came to shape. Then I started querying um, literary agents in uh, the second week of January 2000. Uh, was it 14? I believe yes, 2014. And I had something like 10 offers within a month or two. Um, when I signed with my agent, we then went on submission and we had our first preemptive offer in something like 25 hours. And it just happened oh, really, wow. really fast. It, it was such <laughs> a surprising turn of events. Um, and it sort of felt perfect for this book in particular because it was so scary and so I had to dig so deep to write it. Mm. And that's kind of just what happened. And everything spiraled and roller coastered out of that. 
Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So are, are you going to use that momentum and keep writing? Can we expect to see more from you soon? Absolutely, yes. I've just turned in the final copy-edited manuscript of the next novel, which is out um, in the UK in July and in the US in September in 2016. Um, and I've got a cheeky little Deadhouse novella coming out um, at some point in between now and then. Mm. <laughs> so yes, definitely. Uh, I think now that I know how to do it right and not rush myself, mm. I feel it's going much better. <laughs> you know, that, that's actually something that I wanted to ask you. Um in horror, especially, uh, we're a horror podcast and we specialize in, in short fiction, typically between a thousand to, you know, 30,000 words, anything from that flash fiction to a novella. Um, novels traditionally have had a hard time in horror. What, yeah. what made I'm you glad transition? Getting, you know, it's so funny because I didn't realize I was writing horror when I was writing The Dead House. I always wrote, I wrote dark fiction. But I didn't realize The Dead House was horror until I sort of, I think it was partway through the novel and I was finding it frustrating because the experience I went through was so scary and I, I wanted to reflect that in the novel. And I said to my husband, you know, this I'm not convinced that this is scary enough, you know, for the catharsis I need. Um, <laughs> and he said to me, well, tell me what you're scared of. And we were standing in the kitchen over our morning coffee, as you do, talking about the things that terrify me. And he was like, well, that's what you need to put in the book. And I think it was that point that I started thinking about the reader and how the reader will take the the novel and how to write the things that scare me. And it was only when I realized I was dealing with fear that I realized it was a horror and I, that I wanted it to be a horror because I'm a total horror junkie. I just, for some reason, didn't realize that's what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but happy you, accident. <laughs> you write what you love and exactly. all of us horror junkies, you know, love horror. Who, who are your favorites? Uh, Mark Danielewski. Oh, House of Leaves is just the best i buy that novel for so many people it's like in the beginning i an author recommended it to me and she said you know when you start at some point when you open that book you'll regret it and i was like yeah yeah whatever and the first page is like this is not for you so of course i was like fuck that yes it is for me <laughs> <laughs> so i read that and i remember i was sitting alone in the house facing this long black corridor and i just looked up and i thought oh shit i shouldn't have started this novel <laughs> And it scared me. It still scares me to think about. So, so that one for sure. Um, Adam Neville, I love. Stephen King, of course, from my mm. childhood. Um, and then sort of the the younger books that I read when I was little, like the Goosebumps books, the Fear Street books. So I think I've just always been a horror junkie. I think I read It when I was 13 or something. Oh, gosh. So <laughs> and you're still a semi-functional adult. Wow. Very nice. This is the thing. I always say that people who love horror are the nicest people because they expel their demons through fiction and reading and it, that it's the romance writers and the romance readers that really are horrible people on the inside because they don't have a way to expel it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No. I love you all. <laughs> That's fantastic. You, you mentioned that you, you loved Goosebumps growing up. Um, I noticed that you actually have R.L. Stein writing a review for The oh, Dead House. Gosh. How yeah. did that feel? I literally, okay, so I opened an email from my editor and she was like, oh, by the way, R.L. Stein blurbed your book. And I literally, I'm not joking, fell off my chair. <laughs> so surprised. I was like, <laughs> I wrote back to my editor and I was like, oh my gosh, can I email him? She was like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
but also Christopher Pike. I'd been a huge fan of Christopher Pike's work mm-hmm. as well. And he loved the book too. And again, I was so surprised. And in this case, he actually asked to email me and be in touch. And we are in touch now, which is the best thing that horror has done for me ever. It's it's amazing how tight-knit of a community it is. I love that. I really love that. And it does feel like a community. And you can always tell when you've got a horror buff. You know, when you, you meet someone in the book community, say, you can always tell right away when they're a horror buff. I love that. Mm-hmm. My people. <laughs> <laughs> so getting back to your book, um, Dead House deals with a lot of really pointed topics. Um, you, you deal with mental illness. You deal with um, this wonderful YA kind of uh, pure uh influence where um Carly and Caitlin are are constantly at war with uh everyone around them their psychologists their friends and and it's this wonderful uh kind of dynamic but uh you mentioned in the epilogue of your book and earlier t- uh this evening that you used to suffer from inversion syndrome and you have someone in your life who's gone through uh DID or dissociative yes. identity disorder um i don't want to pry too deeply but can you tell us a little bit about that experience I can do. Um, it, the member of my family who has it has asked not to be named, obviously, because they have a career and everything. Of so course, I respect, of course. I respect that. But um, it was definitely something that influenced me. Um, and the thing is, when I was sick, um, the person with the DID, it, it's triggered by trauma. So any kind of trauma that you then have uh, when you do suffer from DID triggers um like lapses Mm -hmm. so when I was ill I was waiting for a liver transplant and I I honestly we no one thought I would make it because I was just so so sick Um, and I had a blood type that was pretty much ensured that I'd be really lucky to be transplanted in time so I was very lucky Um, so at that point the DID was flaring up a lot and there were lots of different people coming out and it's it's a really scary and confusing thing. I mean, if you can you imagine like you wake up one morning and someone you love dearly is suddenly really angry with you and won't talk to you and you have no idea why and you haven't done anything wrong and they're accusing you of doing things that you haven't done and how that must affect you. I mean, that's from the person's side. From my side, it was a case of, you know, you have someone who loves you and then you have alters who come out who possibly act out because they're scared about what's going to happen and and you sit there thinking I know this person loves me but it's I'm sick and you know you want some support um so when this all happened and because the idea that I'd had was about losing control I just I was I was losing control of my body I was facing the idea of losing an organ and having someone else's organ put inside me and the fact that someone has to die for that to happen I just was I literally was losing everything at that point mm. um obviously Uh, My husband was amazing, but I was convinced that I was going to lose him because I was going to die. And, you know, I was worrying about how he would cope with that and how my family would cope. And because you're suffering so much, you do think about things like maybe I should just kill myself and get it over with. And I did come close, very close to that one evening. Um, And then on top of that, the DID, which is the ultimate loss of control. It's the loss of yourself, which Mm -hmm. to me is the scariest thing of all, you know, to lose you have your personality, you have your mind. It's the basis of everything. But what if you don't even have that? Oh. So 
I, I, because I was thinking of all these losses, it was really morbid experience. And I'm so glad I got a functional novel out of it, but <laughs> it, it was literally about losing control. And for the DID, it, for me, it was the ultimate loss of control um, because, you know, for the person themselves, which is what fascinated me, but also for the people around the person that's suffering. And I know, for example, um, the member in my family, there is an altar that I'm really close to who um, thinks that, they're real doesn't want to go away you know um it's so that's kind of what was in my head when i was going through that mm -hmm. um, and i thought well how interesting you know you only exist at night you've got someone saying well, you're infecting the person you love the most and they mm -hmm. want you to just die oh <laughs> yeah it was, Ow. <laughs> and then on top of that you know this idea that actually there's something more sinister something demonic going on and a lot i mean not a lot but Typically, when you have DID, um, you don't automatically wake up thinking, oh, yes, yes, I do have multiple personalities. Or, you know, your brain fills in the blanks. You don't realize something is wrong. And if you do, you portray it in the narrative that you grow up in or that you exist in. So because I was raised in a fairly religious household, um, the narrative until diagnosis was always like, oh, is it something demonic? Is it something supernatural? Um, and because I just found that fascinating. So I had to put that element into the book too, which is when the demon narrative comes in and the, you know, the Mala and the Grundy side of it. Mm -hmm. you, you've borrowed from several different kind of mythologies um, and even created your own um, with the, the Grundy and the Marla. Um, a couple of the people that I've had read this book to kind of um, give me insight have compared it to Constantine and kind of how you bring in <laughs> yes. some. I, love... <laughs> um, I had thought of that, but someone did say that to me recently, actually. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit, because uh, Grundy and Marla, they're not kind of their own thing. It's something that you created. Yeah. So uh, that's mostly how I was raised. Um, when I was younger, uh, one of my family members worked as a missionary. And um, so I spent a lot of time out in the bush on a mission. And then we would drive into tribes and, you know, have church, basically. And I remember I was about eight or so, maybe seven. I went to one of these meetings and um, I was with the children. So we didn't go to the church meetings. We would just play around. And I was walking past this lady. I think it was a lady. You know, I can't even remember if it was a man or a lady or if I could eat <laughs> All I know is this old person. And I think it was a woman. But I, I again, I couldn't tell. Um, and she cast bones at me. And it was the first time I'd been exposed to a witch doctor type of thing. But the experience was so vivid in my mind. I just, it stuck with me and I became obsessed with tribal culture and I became obsessed with, you know, um, different beliefs. Cause obviously we were on a mission, you know, it was a religious period in my life, mm -hmm. but I was just obsessed with other religions, you know, tribal religions and paganism and different practices that did different things. And I loved the ritual of it. Um, and I remember wrote a first book that I one of the ones that didn't get published was also about tribal ritualistic things where it slaughter animals, just the usual. Um, but through a lifetime of fascination, it kind of commingled into Mala and Grundy. Um, and it's weird because when I started thinking of names, you know, the names to call them, they just popped into my head as though they were there, hmm. as though I had just as if they were just real in my mind for so long. <laughs> so. And people have asked me if I'll explore, you know, the rituals and things further. And absolutely, 100% yes, I will. Mm. Uh, yeah. 
That that's fantastic. I, I remember there was um one scene where um Carly and them are going into the city to get help, and they mm-hmm. go into this Grundy pit or I don't club, I guess. Yeah. And the whole time I'm sitting here going, "Oh, we're gonna meet Papa Midnight, and it's gonna be <laughs> in my house." And it's oh, that's one of my favorite scenes. I love that scene. It's so funny because I had no idea. If I still don't know if that's what inspired me unconsciously, probably, but I just it it's sort of when I was writing the Dead House, a lot of it I wrote in a type of fever. I opened Scrivener, and you know with Scrivener you can have lots of different tabs. So I wouldn't I didn't write the novel in a structured way. I would just open the tab, and whatever came to me, I would just write it down. And I remember the nightclub scene, um, you know, the underground nightclub scene. And I remember that it just wrote itself. Like all this, all these things kept popping out, and Haji just came fully formed. Um, <laughs> so I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled that all my horror loving uh, background information. <laughs> fit into a great scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of your horror loving background, this whole book is written in almost kind of that found footage uh um style where where we're constantly going through um the journals and newspaper and filmed interviews. We we've seen that a lot in film, especially uh in the last, you know, 5 years or so with Blair Witch and um uh Cloverfield and all these. Um, what inspired you to use that for your book? When I first started, the only thing I had was the diaries. Um, and initially it was going to be, when I first started, it was going to be Carly's story where she kept a diary of all the terrible places that her sister, who was going to be a more destructive force, would leave her. And so that was the basic start of it. And it was my cowardly way of avoiding the real story, which scared me, obviously. <laughs> um, so when I finally came to the conclusion that actually this was Caitlin's story and it was my story, um, I still just had the diary entries and I was going along writing the diary entries, which was perfect at, fi- at first, until I realized that Caitlin wasn't being completely honest with me and with the reader. Mm. And I thought, you know, I need to have, and this was where something self-conscious and something technical came about. I realized that I needed um, an unbiased way to show just what was happening. I knew I didn't want uh, a narrator. I knew I didn't want someone to give meaning to what was happening. I just wanted to present something without meaning. Um, And initially it was just going to be the diary entries. So I decided to give someone a video camera where we could literally just see what was happening. So you can see it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that contradicts with what Caitlin is saying in her diary, but there's no meaning given to what happens. I mean, the narrator speculates sometimes because I felt like it needed it a couple of times. But apart from that, you're just presented with what's actually happening. There's no meaning behind it. Um, And that's kind of where the documentary thing came out of. I thought, okay, we've got video entries. I need to know what's happening with the therapist. But again, I don't want to write a narrative. I don't want to give any meaning. I want the reader to, you know break it down and that's when I decided to have the videotaped um, therapy so that part of it was very self-conscious I didn't realize um, that it was found footage until I'd say maybe a few chapters in when I realized the diaries just weren't enough Mm. Uh, I've always loved the idea of not giving meaning like I always wanted to write a book where I don't 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Have the answers necessarily? I don't give the answers. So people write to me, my readers write to me asking me which side of the the dual narrative or the dual explanation is true. And my honest answer is I don't know. Because I I well I had to split myself in two to write this book because it, I'd have to write the Lansing entries fully believing that this girl was sick, you know, mm. and that she needed help. And I, I honestly, genuinely believe that. But then I had to go on different days and fully believe that Caitlin was a victim and that she actually was suffering from some kind of demonic thing. Um, so again, it was just a book that I wrote in two halves, I guess. I <laughs> my, two, my two, my Carly and my Caitlin. Um, and by the end, I honestly, I wasn't sure what I believed. So that, <laughs> it's such a strange thing for an author to say, but it is really a book where it's chaotic on purpose. It was written chaotically. It, you know, you have to find meaning and read between the lines. And there are a lot of clues in there. Mm -hmm. Well, and it was definitely on purpose because they mesh so perfectly and dual narratives are so difficult to pull off well. And you've just absolutely nailed it here. <laughs> so Thank now you. that now that you're a professional writer, how has your life changed? What I didn't expect and that I love is how busy you suddenly become because I forgot that when you're an author, it doesn't just come with writing. It comes with promotion. It comes with um, people wanting to talk to you, which is amazing. It comes with going places and meeting people. So what I didn't expect was that I would have to protect my writing time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize that I would have to I would have to make do with shorter breaks, if any breaks at all, um, to get the words in because 
in publishing, there's not really any time that you stop because mm-hmm. if I'm not writing, I'm doing copy edits. If I'm not doing copy edits, I'm doing actual edits or I'm doing promotion stuff for books that are coming out or, I'm, you know, it's a very public. Uh, it's funny because you're so solitary all the time, but then it's actually quite a public career where, you know, people want to see you. They want to get to know you, which is absolutely fabulous. But you do have to kind of protect your writing time and disappear from the world for a while. <laughs> Less time, I think, to daydream. Uh, (laughs) You have to actually make time in your schedule to daydream. You can't just be like, oh, I feel like daydreaming now. I think I will. Like, no, (laughs) three to four, you can daydream. Right now, you have to answer these emails. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds awesome and terrible all at the same time. At least you can do all of it or the majority of it in your pajamas, which is definitely a plus. Well, I wasn't going to mention anything, but I am totally in the Johnny Bravo pajamas right now, actually. (laughs) That's fantastic. I'm in pajama bottoms on the bottom of me, but the top of me is presentable because I'm... I'm on a video. <laughs> <laughs> yes, listeners. Uh, she she asked us if we uh, were going to do video, and my response was, "Well, I don't have a camera because I'm pretty sure I would break it." Um, j- just from the utter nerdiness of my pajamas. Nerds run the world, didn't you know that? Like, <laughs> we're taking over geek culture. Is finally cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's absolutely well, true. I was in school. It wasn't cool then. <laughs> Well, I think I think there's that coming of age where you have to not be cool to understand and own how cool you really are. Yes, absolutely. Star Trek girl right here. <laughs> and thanks for the interview. Goodbye. Sorry, Bye. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm Star Wars all the way, all the way. Well, I'm both. Okay, okay. And who says you can't be both? True enough. True enough. Have you seen the new Star Trek film? Just as a side. Hmm, I have. Um, I haven't yet. I'm so annoyed. It's been booked up completely ever since it came out. Uh, well, if you're interested, and listeners, if you're interested, we actually, the District of Wonders has a spoiler cast for the new Star Wars film up on our Facebook page. So you can go and explore and see who dies and who lives and how everything oh. just goes. It's fantastic. Oh my gosh. Okay. I need to stay away from that till I've seen it. And then I'll go and mm. have a peruse. <laughs> <laughs> So, Don, um, two questions more. Um, first okay. off, um, as a professional writer, you've talked about how you really have to manage your schedule. Um, did you participate in the NaNoWriMo or what does your this, schedule look look like? I love the idea of NaNoWriMo, but unfortunately, it's November, which is my birthday, a lot of family birthdays. And also, it's the time of year when I'm into already into a novel for the following year so um i didn't participate this year but i hope i can next year it's just oh it's such bad timing it's it's always in a part of my schedule where i'm either not writing or i'm just finishing or i'm editing so i Mm. i wasn't able to but i'm so sad but i was tweeting people and encouraging them and yeah Mm. but i want to participate i haven't won nanowrimo Really shocking. I know. I did. I've done ninety three thousand words was my best in a month, but it was in February. Well, so you I can can't. do NaNoWriMo anytime you want, and that's true. In which case, I have totally won Nano several times. See, there you go. That's all that matters. <laughs> I need a badge now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Validate myself. <laughs> well, um, where else can we uh, find you? I know you've got a book coming out here um, in the UK in you said uh, June of next year. It- July, 14th July. of July. 
It's called The Creeper Man. Um, and it's called And the Trees Crept In in the US edition. Same book, just different titles, different covers. Both are gorgeous. I've seen them. Um, and that one comes out in September. But everything that's to do with me, I put on my website, which is www.dawnkertigich.com. And I've got a Dead House specific website called with www.thedeadhouse.co.uk because there are some cool, exciting things happening with the Dead House. I can't talk about. I'm not allowed. That's the other thing. I um, when your editor's like, okay, so X has happened. Don't talk about it. That's the thing I had to get used to because I'm normally I just blurt out whatever's in my head. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I have that same <laughs> yes. problem. Exactly. Well, all geeks do. I think it's a cool thing. See, <laughs> honest people just blurt out what's in their head. <laughs> Horror junkies are the best kind of people. Mm. But yeah, so I've got news and things happening there. And then I'm on YouTube. I I vlog under Writerholic DK on YouTube and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and I'm just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Listeners will have links to uh, Dawn's website and The Dead House on Amazon that you can uh, go and buy and download her book. It is highly yeah. recommended. Um, and I you really can... love the audiobook as a side note. I've just heard the audiobook very recently, and it's fabulous in mm-hmm. case you prefer audios. Well, and I do. I actually was able to get an early release copy of the audio, and that's how I listen to it. Oh, it's um, brilliant. <laughs> listeners, I would just like to point out that Don here is single-handedly responsible for me missing two days of work um, because <laughs> I was at work just listening to her book and nothing got done. Oh, I love it. I love so, it. Well, well done. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me so much. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And I'm looking forward to seeing your next work. Thank you. I hope you love it. <laughs> uh, you have a good track record so far. <laughs> I shall keep up the good work then, I hope. <laughs> mm, mm, indeed. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. And make sure to check out Don's new book, The Dead House. Links will be in the show notes. Our story for the night comes from Jason Sterner. Jason Sterner grew up along the Fox River in northern Illinois. Of his many jobs, those he most enjoyed were naturalist and botanist. His stories and poems have appeared in Space and Time magazine, Starline, Tales of the Talisman, Morpheus Tales, and Liquid Imagination, among others. He currently lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, near the Great Smoky Mountains. And you can find his website at www.jasonsterner.blogspot.com and as always, link will be in the show notes. And now, Jason Sterner's The Blackout Killer. Rain pelts the small window over the kitchen sink. Cracks of lightning reveal empty pizza boxes and Chinese takeout containers near a stack of dirty dishes. The apartment went dark in a stretch of deep thunder, after which began the languid knocks at the front door of the residence, continuing without a break as if the visitor were unnaturally set upon confronting the inhabitant. That inhabitant, nervous, gray-haired Augur Bennett, sits by candlelight at his dining-room table, browsing old newspaper clippings. Headlines include, Another Child Slain During Power Outage, Murderer Dubbed Blackout Killer, and Blackout Killer Escapes Asylum. Auger, lifelong bachelor and retired locksmith, 
refolds the clippings and tucks them into a tome about phobias, anxieties, and sleep disorders. A book that assures him the knocks aren't real, that such things are triggered by his acute paranoia. Regardless, his nerves unravel. They are defenseless against blackouts. So he swallows another anti-anxiety pill, his third such pill of the evening, then begins to jot down his thoughts in a spiral notebook, an often-used distraction while waiting for the calming effect of the medication. It was thirty years ago this very night, the old man writes shakily. Same run-down suburb, same terrifying mix of thunderstorm and blackout. He pauses to consider the coincidence, then stares at his hands, hands that have done terrible things. I remember the night well, he continues. The boy's mother passed out drunk on the couch as I climbed through his bedroom window, dripping with rain. A hand over his sleeping mouth. Poor child. Waking him to the sight of my gargoyle mask. His reaction, like that of a stunned fish. As I breathed heavy in the mask, and waved my knife and whispered horrible things into his ear. Demonic things like, Behold the boogeyman, and Scream and I'll slit your throat. It was hellish of me, unforgivable. The boy was different than the others, much too frail. He had no friends, no father figure, a drunken whore of a mother. At seven years old, he was broken, unloved, uncared for. He had a desperate need to be free of my insufferable fear blinded me led me to the despicable act of terrorizing innocent children. At the time, I truly believed each attack dislodged a small portion of that fear and placed it inside the child. Lightning cracks over the apartment. Dishes, utensils, and empty ginger ale cans clink in the thunder. Tonight, the blackout, the storm... What he perceives to be an escaped lunatic at the door, all this has fused into a singular anxiety that now asphyxiates his reality. And though his new, stronger medication will soon take effect, banishing the cruel knocks to silence, he cannot, presently, manage to stray from the dining-room table. His legs are concrete pillars, so he returns to the writing. I was a child myself when the fear entered into me. When at age seven, a black, wispy ghoul crawled through my bedroom window and smothered me with its long hair and rank, humid breath, waking me with sharp taps to the forehead. Years later, a therapist would tell Augur the ghoul wasn't real, that it was a manifestation of his mother's murder a murder carried out by a schizophrenic father, no less, and that the waking nightmare had imprinted itself upon every fiber of his frail being. After whispering hideous things into my ear, which it did for no reason I've ever come to know, 
The creature straightened its gaunt black body and thrust out a large butcher knife. This it slowly moved back and forth like a saw, all the while staring down at me with white, slit-like eyes that never blinked. I screamed and screamed for mother, but she did not come. I had all but forgotten she was dead. Then, without a sound, the thing bent its arms and legs, fell to the ground, and crawled out the window like a tarantula. I shudder to think of it. Yet, this is surely what led to my insatiable need to frighten children in a manner similar to the ghoul. Little did I realize, however, what I'd done to that one acutely sensitive child that I'd planted a seed of discord deep inside his soul, a rising evil that would plague every subsequent moment of his life. From then on, the monster must have grown within, its toxins filling his bloodstream, poisoning his mind, altering the once innocent character of his soul, until at last the beast broke free and transformed him into the blackout killer. So potent was the fear I gave to him that night. Sweat glistens on Augur's candlelit forehead baggy eyes revealing a man in the jaws of insomnia. With aching hand, he writes to the bottom of the page. I followed the news, analyzed each of his attacks, those atrocious patterns so eerily similar to my own, the way he stalked his prey during storms and blackouts, the way he went about frightening children with a gargoyle mask. But my God... He killed some of them. Why? I didn't give him that. That was his own. As the old man gathers his thoughts, the knocking, which had gone silent during the therapeutic writing, returns. At first, it reminds him of the quiet, steady drips of a faucet, and then it's the maddening tap, tap, tap of an awful finger against his forehead. Trembling, he clutches at his wiry hair and pleads with the door. Stop! Just stop! 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 But the knocking continues. So he stands, shuffles over to the kitchen sink. There he lingers in darkness, hunched and silent, wrinkled hands pressed tight against his ears. He thinks of his mother's smiling face, her kind eyes watching over him. But amidst the torturous knocking, wide-eyed, deranged children bombard Augur's mind like thrown stones, nudge out the angelic presence of his mother. Meanwhile, the voice of anxiety whispers that the mix of storm and blackout will render his new medication ineffectual, and that the boy-turned-blackout killer has escaped the asylum to return the portion of fear he was forced to take thirty years ago. Now his thoughts mutate, the pack of grunting, deranged children dragging the old man kicking and screaming through a hellish, many-tongued cavern. Knees weaken, chest tightens, 
breaths grow short. Lightning illuminates the sky, revealing wind-blown trees in bluish glow. A black fist punches through the kitchen window, a dark, shrieking face appearing behind falling glass. Augur gasps, throws up saggy arms against the flying shards. He fumbles along the counter, dishes crashing to the ground, grabs the flickering candle from the dining room table and scampers to the front door, bawling like a child. There, his heart pounds against his chest, a junkyard of locks between himself and the long hallway. The ghoul clambers herky-jerky through the window and leaps to the floor. Augur watches it, his hair shot in all directions. He turns to the door, fumbles with the locks, and then, suddenly, as if being erased from reality, the storm softens and the knocks quiet to a dull, listless echo and disappear. Augur wipes snot from his upper lip. His eyes glisten. The medication has taken effect. God, thank you! Thank you! But the medication has not dissolved the ghoul. It now stands at the center of the living room, leaning at an awful, unnatural angle and wielding a large butcher knife. Augur drops the candle, ignites the carpet, fire spreading to nearby furniture. Tears flood his concave cheeks. Mother, help me! Please, help me! And then, for the first time in thirty years, Augur sees them. Sees beneath the long, wet hair the sullen blue eyes of the little boy. The boy who became the blackout killer. When the creature steps forward, the sanguine seven-year-old face becomes fully visible, superimposed over the misshapen head of the ghoul. It is you! Augur sobs before the dark figure, falling to his knees. The flames rise and crack about him. Why are you here? What do you want from me? Another long step forward, and the lurid creature gives the old man a knowing look. No! It's too late! I, I can't take it back! I just can't! It's your fear now, and it's turned evil! It would destroy me! Please! I've already got so much to bear! My victims! Those poor men! Childhoods ruined! Never to find closure. It's all my fault. I know. Dear God, I know. I've suffered my whole life for it. Please, you mustn't. With a jolt forward, the ghoul grabs Augur by the head and suckers its thin lips to his left ear. Bright blue eyes stare blankly as it whispers. Slowly, the words spill out and quickly they enter the old man's psyche. The ghoul then shoves Augur against the door, where he slides to the ground, cackling, the surrounding flames hissing with laughter. The creature, now a naked child, turns and runs back through the fire and clambers out the kitchen window. Smoke fills Augur's grinning face. He begins to lose consciousness.
there was never a fire. The kitchen window stands intact. The storm has passed. Auger snaps awake, listens. The door is silent. With glazed eyes, he lifts the candle, wobbles to his feet, shuffles to the nearby couch for balance. The medication has numbed his mind. He has no thoughts whatsoever, only occasional spurts of cackling. And then, could it be? Someone is knocking at the door. With one free hand, Auger pats down his hair, straightens his posture. Yes? Who's there? No answer. He cackles involuntarily, throws a palm over his mouth, smacks the spittle on his lower lip. It's just the maintenance man, here to explain the power outage, whispers one of his old therapists. Yeah, that's who, the self-help book tells him. See, there's nothing to worry about, you old fool confirms the soothing voice of the medication. Candle in hand, Auger sneaks over to the door and puts his right eye to the peephole. The hallway is pitch black, not a single emergency light or human outline to be seen. A woman whispers his name, a voice not heard since he was a little boy. Mother, is that you? He puts an ear to the door. In a rush of excitement, he unlocks the bolts and throws back the latches, pulls the chains and kicks away the doorstop. He twists the steel knob, steps back, lets the door swing wide open. A wall of darkness greets him. He raises the candle, fills the hallway with weak amber light. There, dozens of children stare back at him. Dozens of children wearing gargoyle masks. That was Jason Sterner's The Blackout Killer, as read by Rock Manor. Rock Manor has been featured as a voice performer on podcasts such as The No Sleep Podcast, Pseudopod, and Tales to Terrify. He is the producer of Manor House, hosted by The Phantom Collector, a horror audio anthology series featured on both iTunes and YouTube. Producers of the Black Tapes podcast call Manor House top-notch, and best-selling author Brian Keane says Manor House is like Tales from the Crypt. It's really fucking cool, which Rock thinks is really fucking cool. Visit his website at manorhouseshow.com, and don't forget that Rock Manor did serve a turn as editor right here on Tales to Terrify. Thank you, Rock. And that will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.